Welcome to the Michigan Constitution Podcast, where the citizens of the Mitten State seek the pleasant peninsula between their state and federal identities through a deeper understanding of how Michigan's Constitution and its defining case law affects their everyday lives. Your host, Tony Snyder, is a licensed Michigan attorney with more than a decade of experience in private and government practice. Through this podcast, you'll better understand the unique characteristics of Michigan's supreme law and probably learn a few fun facts about federalism, too. And now, Here's Tony. Welcome back to the Michigan Constitution Podcast. For this episode, we're going to do a one-off show to address another Michigan case which is making national news. Specifically, the lawsuit brought by the Michigan legislature against the governor of Michigan. It's truly one branch of government, the legislative branch, suing another branch of the government, the executive branch. The purposes of this podcast is merely to teach you what's in the Michigan Constitution. Each podcast will review a different article section, we'll talk about what it means, and we'll review Michigan case law, which helps us to better understand the effects of those constitutional provisions. Here's what this podcast is not. It is not legal advice. It is not legal expertise. Although I am a licensed attorney in the state of Michigan, I make no warranties as to the veracity of the statements I make within this podcast. First of all, I don't practice constitutional law, I practice administrative law. Second, the laws change on a day-to-day basis, as does case law. What might be applicable the day I make a statement about the Michigan Constitution could very well be outdated the day I post the podcast. If you think you're going to become a Michigan Constitutional Scholar because of my podcast, you're sadly mistaken. You'd do better with a Ouija board and a Magic 8-Ball. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. If you need Michigan legal advice, you would be well served to contact the State Bar of Michigan and ask for their Lawyer Referral Service Program for a referral to an attorney who specializes in your legal matter. On or about May 6, 2020, the Michigan House of Representatives, controlled by Republicans, and the Michigan Senate, controlled by Republicans, brought a lawsuit against the Governor of Michigan, Democrat Gretchen Whitmer. Throughout this case, I will refer to the Michigan House and the Michigan Senate as the legislature, while referring to Governor Whitmer as governor or the governor as proper English dictates. The point of the lawsuit brought by the legislature was twofold. And what are those two folds that you ask? They're Executive Orders 2020-67 and 2020-68. Sidebar, an executive order is exactly what it sounds like. It's an order issued by the governor which manages the operations of the executive branch of government. And how do I know this? The Michigan Constitution specifically states the executive power within the state of Michigan is vested in the role of the governor. Further, the Michigan Constitution grants that authority to issue executive orders to the governor, and many enacted statutes specifically give additional executive order authority to the governor. And that's exactly what happened when the governor signed into effect a number of executive orders due to the coronavirus pandemic in Michigan. She declared an initial emergency declaration on March 10, 2020, with Executive Order 2020-4. Now, sidebar, executive orders, commonly referred to as EOs, start with the year in which they are issued. The number after that hyphen or that dash is the number in sequential order in which it was issued. So when we talk about EO 2020-4, 
we know right away it was issued in the year 2020, and it was the fourth executive order of that year. As a replacement to EO 2020-4, she issued EO 2020-33. Now to be clear, she signed a bunch of EOs from 2020-5 through and including EO 32. And in those EOs, she made many wide-reaching policy decisions, ranging from the closure of non-essential businesses to work from home and etc. Now, these 5 through 32 all rested upon the authority as declared in her initial executive order number 4. Therefore, with this executive order 33, she reiterated there was a state of emergency, but she also added there was a state of disaster across the state of Michigan. By doing so, she also authorized the Michigan State Police to coordinate state efforts to assist local governments as needed, and clarified all previous EOs, you know, essentially those EOs 5 through 32, they relied upon EO number 4 and they were to continue on under this new EO 33. And, to show support for the governor, the legislature passed a Senate Joint Resolution on or about April 7th, 2020, approving an extension of the states of emergency and disaster through April 30th of 2020. And, and this is relevant, specifically the fact that they extended it from the 7th out to the 30th is 27 days. We'll get into why all of this is, is relevant, because everything was humming along smoothly until that April 30th day came. And on that day, the governor terminated Executive Order 33 and re-upped her declarations of emergency and disaster with two new executive orders. Executive Order 2020-67 was issued one minute after the termination of EO 33 and relied upon the executive powers of the Governor Act to declare a state of emergency and said that all previous orders which had relied upon EO 33 would remain in effect under this new Executive Order 67. Similarly, she put pen to paper and executed Executive Order 2020-68, which declared both a state of emergency and a state of disaster under the Emergency Management Act. This Executive Order also said, pursuant to the 28-day limitation, that it would stay in effect until March 28th, and all previous orders which relied upon Executive Order 33 would remain in effect until the newly executed order. Now, the reason these newly executed EOs gave such consternation to the legislature was because she left in place all the lockdown requirements that had been placed from November 10th to present, or at least present as of the day that the legislature filed the lawsuit. Honestly, as you're listening to this, it, it's still present. The legislature was hoping that the governor would start reopening businesses throughout the state as some areas of Michigan had minimal to zero COVID outbreaks. The argument coming from the legislators in the Upper Peninsula and in northern areas of the Lower Peninsula specifically was that the governor was imposing strict lockdown measures, which was good for high coronavirus areas like Detroit and Oakland County, but those same strict lockdowns also pertain to no man's land Upper Peninsula. No offense to the good people of the Upper Peninsula, but you're pretty desolate up there. Additionally, 
The legislature argued that the purpose of the 28-day authority limitation in the Emergency Management Act was to ensure the legislature had a role in curtailing the broad and powerful authority given to the governor in this Emergency Management Act. So the legislature sues the governor for her issuance of EOs 67 and 68. Let's discuss them both. But before I do, let me give a quick thumbnail outline of how the rest of this podcast is going to proceed. I'm going to spend the bulk of the recording talking about Executive Order 2020-67, which relied upon the emergency powers of the Governor Act. But I'm not going to say emergency powers of the Governor Act every single time because it's a mouthful. I'm going to refer to it by its popular acronym, the EPGA. At the end of the day, it's the EPGA that caused the governor to win in court. But she loses on the other matter, Executive Order 68, because it relied upon the Emergency Management Act. And the judge who heard the case and had to rule on both EOs 67 and 68 spent the bulk of her time talking about the EPGA and why the governor was legally allowed to issue EO 67 and why all the previous EOs could stay in effect. So I'm going to go into Executive Order 67 now, and we'll close out the podcast talking about how and why the governor lost when she was sued for issuing Executive Order 68. Okay, so Executive Order 67 was issued based upon the authority given to the governor pursuant to Act 302 of 1945, also known as the Emergency Powers of the Governor Act and hereafter the EPGA. The legislature sued alleging two points. Number one, the EPGA does not grant authority for a statewide emergency to be declared, but instead only allows the governor authority to issue emergencies at a local or regional level. Number two, the legislature also contends that even if the EPGA allows for a statewide emergency to be declared, again, they don't think that the governor can issue a statewide emergency, but if the judge does believe the governor can declare a statewide emergency, that authority granted by the legislature back in 1945 to the governor was unconstitutional because the legislature does not have the authority to give that power away to the governor. They believe this authority, which they gave the governor, is a non-delegable responsibility owned only by the legislature and violates the Michigan Constitution. Okay, okay, we're going to go through all of this, and I promise it'll make more sense by the time we're done. But, by the way, you may have to listen to this podcast three or four times to truly get what's going on here, but I promise you it, it will all start to click. The court found in favor of the governor, her authority, and her decision making on this matter. The judge reasoned that the EPGA grants broad authority to the governor to declare an emergency and take appropriate action. In particular, the judge cites the language in the EPGA, which allows the governor to make reasonable orders, rules, and regulations as she considers necessary to protect life and property or to bring the emergency situation within the affected area under control. The judge rejected the notion the governor is limited to local and regional areas under the EPGA because additional language within the act makes clear, and I quote here, it is hereby declared to be the legislative intent to invest the governor with sufficient broad powers of action in the exercise of the police power of the state 
to provide adequate control over persons and conditions during such periods of impending or actual public crisis or disaster. The provisions of this act shall be broadly construed to effectuate this purpose. End quote. But it's that term, sufficiently broad police powers, upon which the judge hangs her hat. She said that sufficiently broad meant just that. There is no language in the EPGA referencing any sort of geographic restriction to a local or regional limitation. To the contrary, the judge wrote, She says that the act expressly gives the governor police power and then cites two cases which have also established what it means for the governor to use police powers. The first case she cited was Blue Cross Blue Shield versus Governor Milliken, a 1985 Michigan Supreme Court case that made clear Quote, the police power of the state refers to the state's inherent power to enact regulations to promote the public health, safety, and welfare of the citizenry at large, end quote. She followed that up with another Michigan Supreme Court case of Western Michigan University Board of Control versus the state of Michigan, when in 1997, the Supremes ruled, quote, it cannot be overlooked that the police power of the state, which undeniably pertains to the state as a whole, was giving to a state official, the governor, who possesses the executive power of the entire state, end quote. For those reasons, the judge believed the legislature trying to read localized restrictions on what is otherwise a broad statewide authority which is given to the state's highest executive official, to wit, the Michigan governor, was a losing argument. In addition to prior case precedent regarding police powers, the judge also looked at the terminology in the EPGA itself. It includes terms such as great public crisis, public emergency, public disaster, and public safety. The judge found that these terms are used to describe types of events which allow the governor to issue states of emergency and, the judge points out, none of them give any indication to suggest they are to be used as a way to limit the police power to a specific local or regional area. The judge believes that the language we quoted from the act, you know, the, the provision which addresses giving the governor sufficiently broad powers of action, that this language was both clear and intentionally given to the governor by the legislature to act in the best interest of all Michigan citizens. Then, the judge goes on for a few more pages to explain why the governor can declare an emergency across the entire state and is not restricted to a certain specific geographic area. Aspects such as if the emergency grew so large and affected the entire state, well, would the governor then have to pick and choose which areas within the state to assist because, well, statewide assistance isn't otherwise allowed? You know, that's if she were to believe the legislature's interpretation of the act. More so, the judge believed the legislature's inability to explain how to demarcate the precise geographic limitations on the governor's authority was a prime example of why the limitation to specific areas was a flawed argument. The legislature couldn't answer the question, which areas would the governor pick and choose if an emergency grew statewide? Because there was no language in the act to limit the governor, nor was the statute written to address only local emergencies. Next, the judge believed that the legislature selectively relied upon parts of the act and did not read it as a contextual whole. She then spends an inordinate amount of time defining what the word within means, and I mean we're talking Bill Clinton definition of what is, is means. So, 
I'll be the good guy here and I'll get right to the point. She essentially looked up the definition in Webster's Dictionary and she decided within means anything that is within the area of Michigan's state border. The judge next discussed the legislature's argument that the EPGA and the 1975 Emergency Management Act, which we'll get into detail on in a few minutes, that these two statutes should be read together and it would be clear the EPGA is not intended to be used as a matter of statewide concern. The reason being, the legislature argues, is because both acts allow the governor to act during times of emergency, but it's the Emergency Management Act which gives the governor statewide authority to take action, whereas it's the EPGA, as written, it's to address localized emergencies. Again, this is all arguments that the legislature was making. Two different acts. EPGA is for local emergencies, Emergency Management Act for statewide emergencies. That's the contention of the legislature. But again, the judge didn't buy what the legislature was selling. She believed both statutes give the governor authority to issue statewide emergency declarations, but it's the Emergency Management Act which gives the governor more sophisticated tools and options. Therefore, the judge reasoned that if the governor chooses to use the enhanced features of the Emergency Management Act, those features also come with a 28-day time limit as stated within the Emergency Management Act. The judge did not believe there was a conflict between the EPGA and the Emergency Management Act like the legislature contends. To the contrary, the Emergency Management Act, which I promise we'll get to in detail here in just a minute, it has a sentence within its act that says this act is not to be construed to modify, limit, or abridge the authority of the governor to proclaim a state of emergency pursuant to the EPGA. So it was the judge's belief that the Emergency Management Act explicitly recognizes the EPGA and the governor's similar but different authority under the EPGA versus the Emergency Management Act. So, said another way, the legislature was fully aware in 1975 when they were creating the Emergency Management Act that the 1945 EPGA existed. The 1975 legislature even went so far as to acknowledge the 1945 EPGA when they were drafting up the Emergency Management Act. And they took no action, no imposed any limitation against or regarding the 1945 EPGA when they wrote up the 1975 Emergency Management Act. The legislature could have. They could have rescinded the EPGA. They could have said that the EPGA was trumped by the 1975 law because it was newer, fresher, or cleaner. They could have said, use the 1975 Emergency Management Act for statewide emergencies because the EPGA was limited only to local areas of disaster. But they didn't do any of those things. So, for those reasons, the judge believed the legislature intended to give the governor two optional avenues to walk down, neither of which prevented the governor to pick just one. She can walk down both avenues if she wants to. So now that the judge has shot down the first of the two arguments the legislature is presenting regarding Executive Order 67, she next needs to address the constitutional argument. Remember, the legislature is saying that the authority they gave the governor back in 1945 is being inappropriately used by the governor. They feel as though the governor's interpretation of the authority granted in the 1945 EPGA greatly exceeds what is actually afforded to her. And if the judge agrees with the governor, 
then that act is unconstitutional because the governor is creating laws which don't exist through all the executive orders she's been issuing. So, said another way, because executive orders are treated as having the force of law, the governor is issuing executive orders which contain requirements that are vastly outside the scope of her authority as listed in the EPGA. And because the Michigan Constitution says it's the legislature's job to create laws, not the governor's role, if the judge believes the governor to have all these powers the governor argues that she has, well, that's the making of law, and it should be reserved exclusively to the legislature. Ergo, the EPGA gives way more lawmaking authority to the governor, which is in violation of the Michigan Constitution, and the judge should declare the EPGA as unconstitutional. The legislature is saying they delegated to the governor responsibilities that they, the legislature, cannot delegate away. So, to determine if the legislature erroneously engaged in what's called non-delegation activity, meaning the things the legislature gave actions to the governor to do, were things that she couldn't and shouldn't be allowed to have. That's, that's non-delegation. When the legislature gives away its power and gives it to the, the governor, well, the Michigan Supreme Court has laid out three guiding principles to help determine whether or not the legislature inappropriately engaged in non-delegation activity. But because the judge didn't go through every principle one by one, I'm not going to either. Instead, the judge focuses on the words, quote-unquote, reasonable and necessary. The judge believed there were enough standards placed on the governor to take whatever actions the governor believed were reasonable and necessary, but constraining her to only navigate within those parameters. So let me put it a different way. The legislature didn't hand the governor a blank check to do whatever she wanted willy-nilly. To the contrary, the legislature limited the governor to take actions which were reasonable and necessary to address and control the emergency. If the legislature would have given the governor carte blanche authority and just walked away, sure, that could be viewed as delegating their lawmaking authority. But they didn't do that. In 1945, they said the governor must only act in a way that is reasonable and necessary. Now, we certainly could talk about whether the actions taken by the governor were reasonable and necessary, but that's not the point of this podcast. My point here is to teach you what's going on between the two conflicting branches of government. You can decide on your own to what extent you believe the governor's actions are reasonable and necessary. The judge quotes from the EPGA when she states that the governor can only declare an emergency during, quote, times of great public crisis, disaster, rioting, catastrophe, or similar public emergencies within the state, or reasonable apprehension of immediate danger of a public emergency of that kind when public safety is imperiled, end quote. So the judge believed there were plenty of parameters and limitations the legislature placed on the governor within the EPGA. It is not an inappropriate delegation of authority so long as the legislature holds on to some amount of control over whatever it is that they've delegated. The judge found there were plenty of areas in which the legislature retained control over the governor's actions. Further, the judge went on to say the EPGA also delineates what the governor can and cannot do once an emergency has been declared. For example, 
The governor can create reasonable orders, rules, regulations, which the governor considers necessary to protect life and property or to bring the emergency situation within the affected area under control. The judge really likes those words, reasonable and necessary, and she did not believe them to be an abstract term of art. To the contrary, she found those words have been relied upon by courts because they provide standards by which a judge could determine their reasonableness and their necessity simply by reviewing the actions taken by the governor and then weigh those actions against the requirements and limitations as set forth in the act. Lastly, the judge found that the EPGA expressly lists one example of an action the governor cannot take under the act, and that is the confiscation of illegally owned guns. The judge considered this one limitation to be an additional restraint which the legislature holds over the governor. Again, without getting into a political debate, is one express limitation really enough to say the legislature kept some control over the governor's actions? That will, no doubt, be part of the legislature's appeal. For all the reasons discussed, the judge believed the EPGA contains enough restrictions on the governor's authority and that the act provides standards for the exercise of the governor's authority that the legislature did not delegate away its authority in contradiction to the Michigan Constitution. Therefore, the judge believed that the actions taken by the governor, particularly the issuance of EO 67, and all business and personal restrictions as contained within Executive Orders 5 through 32, permits the governor to legally act in the manner in which she is governed. But we still have to address the portion of the case that the legislature did win, and that's the argument the governor overstepped her authority by terminating one executive order at the end of 28 days, only to issue a brand new order, which includes the exact same language from the recently terminated executive order, and signed into effect Executive Order 68. This, the judge believed, was an unlawful action by the governor and struck down EO 68 and all requirements within that order. The legislature successfully alleged that when the governor issued Executive Order 68, this action was ultra vires, Latin for beyond the power, of actions that the governor was allowed to take. To begin, here's what you need to know about the Emergency Management Act, which I will henceforth call the EMA. It gives the governor authority to deal with dangers to the state or the people of the state of Michigan when presented with a disaster and or an emergency. The EMA also allows the governor to issue executive orders and other directives that have the force and effect of law. Also, through an executive order, the governor may suspend a regulatory statute, a regulatory order, or regulatory rules if these regulations would prevent, hinder, or delay necessary actions in coping with the disaster and or emergency. Also, the EMA gives the governor the right to issue the following orders. The utilization of resources, transfer functions of state government, seize private property with payment of appropriate compensation, evacuate certain areas, control the entering and exiting of certain areas, and finally, and I quote here, take all other actions which are necessary and appropriate under the circumstances, unquote. As the judge appropriately pointed out in her written opinion, quote, these powers are indeed awesome, unquote. 
So the question before the court to decide was, can the governor legally, via EO-68, reissue a declaration of the exact states of emergency and disaster which she had only terminated just one minute earlier? Well, here's the wrinkle. All of these quote-unquote awesome powers that we've just discussed and are given to the governor, those powers are only good for 28 days. So she can do all those awesome things we listed essentially unfettered for 28 days. But after the 28 days, however, that declared state of emergency or state of disaster, or as is here with our case, both an emergency and a disaster declaration, they must be declared terminated by the governor unless the governor requests and the legislature approves an extension of time for an additional number of days. So to be clear, anytime between day one and day 28, the governor can terminate the declarations of disaster and emergency because she believes the disaster conditions have been resolved, or she can ask the legislature for an additional 1 through 28 days of more time for those emergency powers to exist. Either the legislature gives her some number of additional days, you know, again, that number being 1 to 28 days, or the legislature does nothing and those awesome powers go away. Even the judge pointed out in her opinion, the legislature can re-up the 1 to 28 days over and over and over again, that there is no limit on how many times the legislature can re-up the powers granted to the governor under the EMA. But the key is that the legislature must extend those powers to the governor, and if they don't, she cannot continue to use all the powers as listed in the EMA. In our case, the legislature did not extend any additional number of days past their initial extension back on April 7th, which continued the governor's authority under the EMA to that April 30th deadline that we've been focusing on all along. The governor argued that she had the authority to execute emergency order number 68 because there still existed all the emergency conditions which existed at the first time she had issued executive order 33. As such, because the legislature didn't extend the number of days as she requested, she had to issue a brand new executive order under the EMA. How can the governor make this argument, you may be wondering? It's based on the language in the EMA, which states that the governor must declare a state of emergency and or disaster if the governor finds that an emergency and or disaster has occurred. And because the coronavirus was still a disaster and an emergency on April 30th, well, then the EMA required the governor to issue Executive Order 68. In other words, the governor was saying, well, gosh darn, I don't want to issue this Executive Order 68, but the act says I must declare a state of emergency or a state of disaster if one exists. And gee, COVID is still around and it's a real disaster and a big old emergency. So, well, there you go. I'm obligated by law to issue the executive order declaration uh, declaring this disaster. All right, well, maybe she wasn't quite so folksy about it, but that's the argument she was making. She believed the EMA requires her to issue this new EO, despite what she may have otherwise wanted to to do. I don't think it's a political statement here to say she wanted to reissue the states of emergency and disaster given the continued existence of the COVID outbreak in the state. The political argument for you, the listener, to decide 
is if she did so to maintain all the awesome powers she's given under the EMA. Whether her wanting to keep those awesome powers is for you to decide. Regardless, the judge thought the governor's legal argument was hogwash. The judge found the governor took the disaster declaration requirements out of context, thus rendering the legislature's 28-day extension statutory language as meaningless. And courts don't like when people try to make specific and express statutory language meaningless. More so, the court reminded the governor there is language in the EMA which requires the governor to terminate the declaration of emergency or disaster unless the legislature extends the governor's declaration. The judge believed the governor of Michigan is afforded broad authority under the EMA to make rules and to issue orders. However, that authority is subject to a time limit of 28 days unless extended by the legislature. If the governor could simply terminate a declaration of disaster on day 28 as required by the act, then redeclare the same disaster one minute later, it makes irrelevant the extension timeline is granted exclusively to the legislature. Following the governor's logic, she could terminate and redeclare every 28 days for the four years she's in office with no oversight or limitation by the legislature. This flies in the face of the separation of powers between the different branches of government and the entire notion of checks and balances. For those reasons, the governor was deemed to have exceeded the scope of her authority under the EMA, and her Executive Order 68 was struck down as unlawful. In conclusion, Although the judge told the governor she must get the legislature's approval for an extension of those awesome powers granted to her within the EMA, and thusly struck down EO-68, the governor did win her argument that she can reissue her Executive Order 67 under the EPGA because there is no 28-day timeline restriction, and the EPGA applies to the entire state of Michigan, not some geographically limited area within the state. Likewise, because she has the authority under the EPGA, all the previous executive orders the governor issued pursuant to Executive Orders 4 and 33 were allowed to remain in effect and the governor neither exceeded her statutory authority nor was she granted any delegated powers which the legislature argued was saved only for their branch of government. This is clearly step one of a multi-step legal process. The judge has given the Court of Appeals plenty of room to support or overturn this initial decision. And believe me, each side is going to appeal the executive order decision which went against them. This means the legislature will appeal the judge's decision on EO67, while the governor is going to appeal the judge's decision on EO68. As it currently stands, the Court of Appeals will get an opportunity to hear this case although no date has been set for when those oral arguments will be made. What we do know, however, is that the Michigan Supreme Court has told the Court of Appeals they must hear and issue a ruling no later than August 28, 2020. So expect an update to this case sometime around the 1st of September 2020. The Michigan Constitution Podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not offer legal advice or create an attorney-client relationship. This podcast is hosted by Tony Snyder. For more information, visit TonySnyder.com, send an email to podcast at TonySnyder.com, or follow Tony on Twitter at TonySnyder. Catch new episodes on the 1st and 15th of each month. Thanks for listening. <laughs>